0: Osiris.
1: This is Dark Blue. My name is Jeff Rickley. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the challenges that people face when they choose a life in the arts. On each episode... We'll talk to a different artist about a range of topics, from addiction to depression, to what it feels like to lose a collaborator to suicide. And we'll try to find the tools that they've used to lead healthy lives in a field that has few guidelines. On today's episode, I talked to Dave Sherman, an addiction specialist who deals primarily with artists and musicians, and has particular success in group settings and on tour. A few weeks ago, I spoke to Norman Brannan of Texas Is The Reason and he made the assertion that he believes group therapy can't work on bands. I called Dave to talk about whether or not this is the case, the efficacy of treatment in group and tour settings, as well as some of the factors that lead to addiction among artists and why it can be so hard for artists to get clean. Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do in your own words?
0: Uh, Dave Shumman, um addictions professional, the road to rehab. Uh, long history of uh, primary counselor at a bunch of different treatment facilities. Inpatient, outpatient, uh, all ages, mostly focusing on teenagers and young adults. Uh, got involved working with musicians probably 10 years ago from a background in the music industry and then kind of spun that into a solo private practice about six years ago.
1: How did you end up, um, coming to specialize in musicians and touring and the kind of stresses that go along with that? Bad karma. Really, really <laughs> Indeed. karma, yeah. Uh, was there just, one particular patient that made the transition seem inevitable or was it something you got the idea in your head for or? Uh,
0: I think there was probably, you know, cause I had had a background in the music industry and there was definitely a, an idea that eventually worked my way back into it cause there's such a need, God knows. Um. And then it was one of those where, you know, from a, a connection at a label when I was counseling, he got in touch and said, you know, I'm managing a band. That can you connect with the singer? And and it, it just, the connection worked really well, and that just it kind of spiraled out from there. You know, it was one of those where I was helping him on the phone and on Skype, and then eventually on tour. And then um, Mike Shea from Alternative Press actually had me do some columns back in 2012, right? Which uh, went kind of viral. Um, You know, and it just kind of spirals from there.
1: So, you know, working with musicians and working on the road, what are some of the challenges that you see that are sort of specific to musicians or kind of exaggerated uh, with musicians? You know, problems that maybe other people have, but that musicians and artists seem to, like, really lean into?
0: (laughs) Well, one of the parallels I noticed really, really soon on was that even for musicians that aren't addicted or alcoholic, the whole touring lifestyle, nine or 10 months a year, Mm -hmm. because addicts and alcoholics, people that use every day, are not developing coping skills through everyday Mm -hmm. life that normal people develop, whether that's, you know, first name basis with the postman or paying bills or, you know, rent and mortgage and all that stuff. But touring professionals, it literally parallels that, you know, and I discovered that I was working with people that, just didn't have those connections and weren't growing as people and had that kind of same stunted emotional maturity. Now, and that's just the normal musicians. So you get somebody that's an addict or an alcoholic, and it's almost like a double dose.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a double.
0: Right. Of the arrested development. You know, <laughs> sure. Yeah, you, know, you got to kind of address both of them. Right. You know, from not being at home for 10 months a year, it's you know, perfectly understandable.
1: And do you see, I mean artists that haven't begun touring you know because i think a lot of people that are listening to this maybe are just getting started on their artistic path they haven't even started touring yet and stuff do you see uh, a prevalence in kind of addictive behaviors in artists even before they go on the road oh
0: um sure yeah there are definitely a lot of parallels to the mindset and i know i actually addressed this in one of those columns in All press um you know, there is this deep-seated desire for an artist to seek validation through outside of the means, whether that's people or money or, you know, you're looking to feel whole by something outside of you. Sure. Um, you know, sending the music out in the hopes that people appreciate it and, and give you feedback or, um, you know, which is just like, you know, needing something in a bag or a bottle or a needle to feel whole, to feel comfortable in your skin. So, yeah, um, I think there's definitely a lot of that. Same kind of mindset, um, just not feeling whole unless something outside of you validates it.
1: So it must get confusing at times to be working with people whose success is driven by the same kinds of behaviors and the same kind of compulsions yeah. that their like addiction or their you know sort of destructive behaviors are driven by. So you have on the one hand you know, the secret of their success, and on the other hand, kind of yeah. the Achilles heel at the same time. Sure. Do you ever find that, that? Oh, constantly.
0: I mean, you know, there's A, the whole idea being that you get so emotionally and sometimes physically dependent on substances that, am I going to be able to create without it? You know, that's, that's sure. a huge crisis for every artist I've ever worked with. And number two would be, it's not about the drugs the alcohol, you know, there's so much of the lifestyle that also you get addicted to, you know, and, in, and I've worked a lot of artists that say, well, the only place I'm comfortable is on stage. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take some time to develop, you know, that comfortability in your skin that, you know, you can be okay and and how to come down after a performance in a healthy way and how to come down after a tour in a healthy way without, you know, that huge crash. There's so many artists that just get so depressed when they're not on stage or not, you know, involved in that whole process.
1: Absolutely. I've been there. Um, Such strange things, you know, even Pavlovian reactions where 9, 10 o'clock at night I get a surge of adrenaline. Exactly have nothing to do with yeah. it because i 'm not getting on stage tonight, you know, yeah, totally um, it really and, is and, yeah, no, sorry, go ahead
0: no I was I, I, Pavlovian that's I remember I had a client that um was having panic attacks every day too, mm-hmm. um, and, and it took a little time for us to figure out that you know she was an opiate addict that literally almost like clockwork um, you know she would go through her morning and then kind of count down the minutes until she could finally you know take some pills at two. It was absolutely hardwired into her biology at that point. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Even even beyond
1: minor. yeah, if you get sober it's that reaction doesn't go away, that counting the clock. I mean, these are the kinds right. of things that people who haven't been there don't yeah. I don't think they always know. You know, I think some people would think, sure, of course you can you can understand why somebody would need to medicate to get on stage in front of so many people but what you don't what maybe they don't understand is that actually stage is the one place that you feel okay and you're medicating right. for the rest of your life. You know, that's right. a, it's it's like you know, the thing that would paralyze. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that would paralyze some people. It's like, no, no, that's what I live for. It's the rest of the day that paralyzes me. Right? Well, that's...
0: Because you're getting that rush from the crowd and from, sure. you know, being worshiped from afar. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's absolutely a drug.
1: And, and so when you work with artists, you know, a lot of the time that has to do with them getting sober or, you know, uh, helping them get rid of, a, a dependency on a drug or whatever. Um, do you ever find that there's a, a sort of sense of, Untangling, where you have to undo the behavior that led to the uh, drug addiction, but you're kind of trying to be mindful of not undoing their work ethic or not undoing their creativity. Do you ever feel like you're tip, like not even tiptoeing, sure. but is it just sort of a complex relationship to have with an artist?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Your you typical addict or alcoholic is a Type A personality and above average IQ. And frequently, when you get off of things, you can dip into workaholism really simply, you know. And, and, and a lot of people will end up just doing a pure substitution. Um, and you, don't you want just to said something that.
1: that shocked me. I have to. I don't want to like back it up, but you said, you know, I think we have a an idea of a drug addict being sort of a slacker or somebody. Yeah you know, below the level of the average, you know, worker yeah. or, or academic or whatever, you know, they're, they're just below and they end up turning to drugs. But you said that they're type A, which is the most surprising thing that you just said. So usually type A and usually above average intelligence. I mean, I don't think, I think some people would find that
0: shocking, right? I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Like, and it didn't occur to me that so much of my use was trying to be in control of situations at all times emotionally. Like, I didn't see it that way. I just thought I'm miserable and this makes me feel better. But it's like, oh my God, that's exactly what I was doing. You know, it's so much of it was a control issue and that's absolutely type A.
1: So before you were a counselor, you had uh, your own sort of experience with drugs and alcohol and getting clean and, and all that. Is that a part of your story and how you yeah, came guess, to do this? I guess we
0: skipped over that entirely, didn't we? Yeah. Part of the backstory. I know. Um, you so I know that. But yeah, Jeff was playing like... <laughs> dumb, everybody. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got sober in, in February of 99 and I've and had a continuous stretch so far. So it's about 19 and a half years. I think I'm coming up on. Congratulations. That's Thank awesome. you. Thank yeah. you so far. So good. Yeah. I mean, I've been drinking rum since breakfast, but that doesn't count. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Sure. Sure. No. He's kidding, everybody. He's kidding. Kidding.
1: kidding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> um, yeah. So so and that definitely helps in terms of. Uh, you know, getting through to other alcoholics, just being able to understand it and come from that perspective of, I get it. I know what it's like.
1: Right. You're not judging them. You, you right. relate, you get it. You've oh, I that. judge.
0: I judge yeah. all the <laughs> oh, time. Sure. Sure. <laughs> but uh, in addition, I can help too. Yeah. You know, and that helps. Cause I know for me, when I first got sober, I was in a treatment facility and there were most of the staff were actually in recovery, which was very reassuring, but a couple weren't. And I was naturally mm-hmm. suspicious. Like right. what could they possibly? I mean, they would only been helping alcoholics for thirty years. So, but right. I, in but my mind, how could they possibly <laughs> understand what <laughs> right. I'm going through? Because I'm a right. schmuck. Because for the most part, I'm a schmuck. Yeah. Right. But no, it helps. It, it definitely. It, it's a lot easier to gain the trust of someone that struggles with the disease of addiction quicker. I know that you treat
1: uh, artists beyond musicians, right? You treat sometimes visual artists, sometimes painters, yeah. stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do you find that there are similar kinds of uh, things between visual artists? You know, like, is there a common sort of like, yeah. Oh, know. sure. Yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's the, I want everyone to love me, but I totally hate myself. I mean, there's one common thread in every artist I've ever worked with. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, one of my friends, Darcy, uh, who's on another episode of this podcast, Darcy Wilder, she said in her book, she said, uh, art is another way of making somebody listen to you talk about your life. which I felt like, oh, yeah, that really reduces it down. (laughs) Darcy's a genius. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) totally. She gets it. Um, But, yeah, yeah, I see that. Uh, Yeah, the need for validation runs deep in all of us. Do you find any significant difference between bands and visual artists? Is the sort of being thrust into a group situation different than being sort of a solo?
0: Yeah, I was actually going to say, I mean, there's definitely, at least with the visual artists I know, there's definitely a lot more social anxiety, Um, You know, you go to a gallery opening and they're losing their minds, whereas an audio artist, although they're comfortable on stage, but then how many of them are actually pretty socially anxious too when they actually have to interact with the fans?
1: Sure. When we talk about a crowd, yeah, Yeah. when we talk about a crowd, you know, we call it gen pop. Like going out where the rest of the people are. Like, you know, it's like you're being in prison when you go out with the rest of the people, right? Totally.
0: It's like, I want to be on stage, but as long as there's 10 feet between me and them, then I'm fine.
1: And I think some people read that as, like, oh, they think they're so much better. It's like, no, they're so scared of you. No, crippling anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, that's
0: what it really comes down to. Um, And that's, that's such a good point, though, in terms of perspective. Like, you will see someone that's very aloof in public and assume they think they're better than me, but it's actually just, yeah, really shy.
1: Really shy, right. Um, And I think there's a certain extreme uh, that goes with being, you know, the extremes in arts and the extremes in drug use is sort of like self-aggrandizement, you know, huge ego about some aspect of your personality then huge crippling uh, doubt about the rest of yourself. That high and low, that almost, I wouldn't say bipolar, I'm not saying that this is a condition of the mind, but sort of a a kind of extreme edges.
0: And and how much of an artist's identity is... Um, defined by people's reaction to them. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something you got to unwind when you get sober. Like you got to start believing in yourself and not the continuum of what people tell you you are. I imagine there's a
1: certain number of your clients that you talk to either in the middle of their band falling apart or after their band has broken up, where finally things are sort of like crushing down on them. Do you ever find through your work with addiction to have to kind of help a person to become more than just I'm the guitar player in this band, or I'm the singer of this oh, yeah, band. Sure. Do you ever sure. see that? like?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. There, I mean, there's just a complete lack of identity outside of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and how much of their identity exists outside of that. But also, people get so confused with their persona on stage. You know, on mm. this 10-foot-tall, bulletproof person. Uh, oh, wow. But stage, who the hell am I? You know, you just kind of disappear.
1: So even beyond... My association with the band, my yeah. association with the me that I am when I feel yeah. huge and and on meta. stage. I call it going meta. Yeah, going meta. Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting, Dave. Um, and I, okay. for for me, I certainly I can relate. Like I don't think we've actually talked that much about that in our. For for the people listening, also, Dave is is a a counselor of mine. Um,
0: I can't confirm or deny that. But
1: but we we haven't talked about this idea before, and I can certainly relate to that. That person that I am on stage, you know, there was a time when the band first started getting known, we were playing all the time, where I would start to notice, in general, in public, I'd be walking around, standing straighter, I'd be holding Uh, my head up high, I'd be be feeling like the me on stage, off stage, you know, and then in the, you know, decade plus, well, 20 years now, um, that I've, I've been doing it, you know, I've gone back to, right. I'm the me on stage and then I'm the me off stage and they're sort of like the Clark Kent and the Superman, you know what well, I mean? yeah
0: I mean, and, and that so parallels the whole idea of addiction and alcoholism with living the double life mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. somewhere along the line. You want to integrate those two.
1: Yeah. There's that sort of sense of, uh, stealing from one aspect of your life yeah. in order to bolster yeah. another aspect, right? The robbing Peter to. Pay Paul or Paul to pay... I can't remember what it is, what the phrase is, but...
0: We're making literary and biblical allusions on the show today.
1: <laughs> gotta do it. All
0: right, totally.
1: Uh, gotta, you gotta really mix up some characters in the Bible, or else it's not a podcast. No, I'm just <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> um, so the reason, uh, you know, beyond our personal relationship and my belief in the work that you're doing and how important it is for artists to have somebody who understands them to talk to, um, the reason that I, I thought to have you on on this podcast in in the first set of episodes is that I talked to uh Steve from Thursday and Norman from Texas is the reason um uh recently and we got a little bit into the idea of group therapy and some mm-hmm. kind of monster came up you know <laughs> right, which is what right. most people know about uh band therapy sessions and and you know Norman said and this Norman's a, a brilliant man uh, he you know teaches uh, college classes and stuff like that. Uh, and he said he doesn't think that band therapy can work mm. because with so many different personalities, how could you ever get a suggested outcome? And I thought, that's a great point. And when he was saying it, I was nodding my head like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then I remembered that I've done it totally. with bands. To a that, great deal of success. And yeah, to, to to definitely a suggested outcome to where we could all see eye to eye on something. and. Yeah. And that uh, I thought, you know, this is something I know you have experience with. So what's your
0: perspective on that? Can it work? um, Yeah, I mean, with all due respect (laughs) to Norman. um, Yeah, of course. I I totally disagree. But the group dynamic is tough, you know. and, And I spent years working with teenagers and inner city kids. And so it's not like... I mean, especially when you've got a band full of people that are running on ego. You know, I mean, I, this sure. may come as a shock to you, but musicians tend to, you know, get a egotistical and have trouble. So you, you got to find, you, I know, I know, you got to find the right person for it. You really do. Um, and there's so many times where I'm working with bands that are so bad at communicating from a, a serious emotional standpoint, um, you know, because they've got that arrested development that done emotional maturity that they'll be on tour and the only time they'll be interacting is when they're on stage, you know, for that one hour a day. And otherwise sure. they're like in their bunk, they're in the venue, they're going for coffee, but they just won't even look each other in the eye And they right. get on stage. And, and that's the one connection for the day. And some of them are drunk and some of them are high and some of them aren't. And, and there's just no – so it's like, okay, first things first, got to literally get you guys to sit down together and just start talking. And one of the things I did – on tour once, the band, at this point, they hated each other, but nobody was talking, and some stuff had happened, some negative stuff that they'd never addressed. And I started with just the singer, and then we talked for an hour, and then we brought in one guitar player, and then the drummer, and then and we just slowly in the back lounge of a bus, and it was like a three-hour group. Sure. And it ended up, it was actually a great story, it ended up, I mean, literally, you know, five grown men just sobbing hysterically because they had so much stuff they needed to get off their chests. Sure. And it went on for hours. They were hugging and crying, and there's this gentle knock on the door. I'm like, "Well, who the fuck's that?" And it was the TM who comes out and goes, "You guys know you need to be on stage in ten minutes, right?" And it's we had completely lost track of time. We had no idea. Um, (laughs) Right, totally. So they're all emotional set. (laughs) So we're walking to the stage, and and the TM and I were kind of hanging back, and he's like, "What's going to happen?" And I was like, "Well." Either. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's going to be the heaviest, most emotional state you've ever seen in your life, or it's going to be five grown men sobbing and crying and hugging each other on stage. And I have no idea. You know, uh, I would not have brought it up right up until they were on stage. I would, you know, an hour before, let's pull them out of this. But it just slipped away. That's it totally it was so heavy. Yeah. So it ended up going great. Um,
1: well, it's funny that you say that about, you know, oh, here's these, these guys, you know, crying in the back lounge. And I think, yeah. you know, to sort of put it in perspective... Um, one of our producers, one of the producers that Thursday uh, worked with a bunch is a guy named Dave Friedman, who is most uh, notably, I guess he's most known for the Flaming Lips and mm-hmm. MGMT and sort of like a bunch of, you know, but he's been doing it for a long time. He's been with Flaming yeah. Lips for the entire 30 years of their career. And um, he did one of my favorite records from Sleater Kinney, The Woods. And I asked him a ton about, about that record you know, and about what it was like to work with Sleater-Kinney. And he said, you know, the strangest thing was they would talk to each other and they would get emotional with each other if they needed to. And just to give you an idea, here's a guy who does probably, you know, 10 records a year, has countless bands of all different walks of life from Japan and from, you know, Scotland and all, all over the place. And he was like, they talked to each other and had emotionally right. open right. conversations. And that was what shocked him. You know what I mean? So it's like that gives you an idea how much bands talk to each other at a certain point. Right.
0: And the whole idea of art is we're expressing our emotions. And yet <laughs> the vast majority of artists are so stunted.
1: Closed off from each other. Sure. Yeah, so
0: you get a band full of women, and of course they actually communicate and produce brilliant art.
1: And and they're just so yeah, and and it shows in their art. You know what I mean? I think it does. like you can hear a vulnerability that's really like it's very I was going to use the word
0: visceral. Yeah, I mean it's just it's yeah. out there. Yeah, it's, it's exposed. Right, and that's isn't that what art is? You know, it's like I'm going to cut my chest open and bleed all over this art. And that's the art that draws me. Sure. And yet you ask an artist how you feeling, and they go, Um Well. Good. Good. Yeah, right. Fine. I'm fine. What's gonna get you to leave me alone the quickest? That's what I say. Oh
1: my god, look at the size of that rat, and they just run. Totally. Yeah. To be fair, look at the size of that rat is how I feel a lot of the time. That's a metaphor. We're gonna take a break now and have a word from the people who make dark blue possible. Dark Blue is part of the Osiris family. Osiris connects people like you with podcasts, videos, and live experiences about artists and topics you love. Visit OsirisPod.com and sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss new interviews, events, and podcasts. In talking about Slater-Kinney and their vulnerability and openness on the woods, I started thinking about the value of counseling beyond just addiction within bands and the ways in which anxiety and depression... Can lead to substance abuse. Beyond that, I wanted to find out from Dave what he sees being the most effective way to fight addiction. Is it 12 step? Is it meditation? Is it spirituality? Is it medication? Do you ever do counseling for artists and bands outside of substance addiction? Do you ever find that it goes past that? You do.
0: Well, I didn't intend on doing it that way. Okay. Um, But early on, you know, a couple of people hit me up and said, you know, somebody that's has got with anxiety. And I was like, well, technically every client I've ever had, you know, there was an aspect of anxiety to it. That's why we drank. And it went really well. And then, you know, it's like, well, depression, well, sure. And and what occurred to me somewhere along the line was that I've never focused on the drinking and the drugs. Like by the time Mm -hmm. clients get to me, you know, we talk about alcohol and drugs during the first session. How much have you done? How long have you been doing it? When did you start doing it? And then we never really talk about that again. You know, it's all about the underlying causes and conditions. So most of my clients, it never even comes up, drug or alcohol related. And I I just started getting referrals, you know, in terms of, you know, that guy with the depression said, you've really helped me a great deal. I'm going to send a friend over. So it just kind of morphed into, I call it life coaching. Um, Sure. But it's all the same stuff. Yeah.
1: At least in the the 12 step programs, you know, there's a lot of consciousness about, you know, at this point, it's not alcohol anymore. At this point, exactly. it's not the drugs anymore that we're right. dealing with. You know right. what I mean? Like guys that have 10 year sobriety still go to meetings every day. Yeah, day. They're not going because they like need to hear that they shouldn't drink. They figured they seem to have figured at least the principle out whether or not they can live it every day. You know what I mean? Like, um,
0: and, and in a 12 step so, program, they mention alcohol once in the first step. Right and after that, it's got nothing to do with alcohol
1: there's a lot of different approaches these days to addiction. You know, there's smart recovery, there's uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, there's exposure therapy, there's, uh, you know, there's psychedelic therapy, there's, you know, do you feel that any of them have a a special place in your work where you think like I've seen this one work and it's just, it's really, you know, this is, I I would bet that this is my, the one, the way to do it,
0: you know? Well, I'm a firm believer in 12 step, Programs, I have strongly mm-hmm. recommended every one of my clients go to at least check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, I've had great results with. That's definitely my background in terms of helping people, and it's what helped me. Um, I, I try to remain as open-minded as possible. Sure. You know, But I, you've I, again, seen great things from 12-step. Oh, sure. Yeah, I yeah, am. very high recovery rate. Highest of any of the ways, um, definitely. And it's a built-in support network. I mean, the, one of the great things about 12-step is that it's everywhere. You can Mm -hmm. go on vacation in Europe and Mexico and Canada and Cape Cod, and you're going to be able to find meetings, which is important. You you want to plug into people. Um, I mean, Smart Recovery is an extremely new program. Right. Uh, It'll get there, hopefully, you know, if it it gains some, you know, and you can find cognitive behavioral therapy anywhere. Um, So I'm open-minded in that, you know, I don't think any one program's got a monopoly on the truth and that, you know, you could more than likely get something out of all of them. You ever read the book Tuesdays with Maury?
1: I I have not read it, actually, though.
0: But uh, uh, Maury at one point talks about being a spiritual mutt. Okay. Like he, he, you know, can find something in every possible spiritual path that he can kind of blend into his own personals. And I just love that. Yeah. Um, If you get nothing else out of that book, I think that's a great thing. That any program that's designed in some capacity to help you get sober, it's more than likely got something that will resonate with you. Why not at least experiment with it?
1: I bounced around a lot before I decided to actually try the 12-step stuff. You know, I really... I really resisted. I think a lot of people resist it because sure. because it's the sure. most common program. It's the one that gets pushed at you first a lot of times and I think people are naturally reactive, right? They go like, No. You know what I mean? Like oh, no matter well, no what it is. That's no. a very alcoholic
0: <laughs> tendency, is the oppositional nature of oh, that works for <laughs> everybody else, but I'm different.
1: But the thing that I noticed that I find interesting now is that there there is overlap in yeah. a lot of the core stuff and yeah. you know, I think maybe some people would be surprised to find out that uh, almost certainly, twelve step work has cog- cognitive behavioral therapy. Absolutely. Even if it didn't have that name when it became right. part of the program, right. it has group therapy, right? Like speaking of the group dynamic, yeah. that has a huge amount of of what's going on in twelve step is is, a, is group recovery and group sharing and empathy and cognitive behavioral therapy. There's really a lot packed in there.
0: It's almost like the two guys that found that it really did their homework. You know, they didn't just kind of stumble on this formula right and they did
1: right they i mean they tried other cures they did all kinds of stuff right they went in in into you know take a what was that one thing that the that bill wilson took in the hospital right before the uh, belladonna treatment
0: belladonna yeah that sounded horrible uh (laughs) well (laughs) you know there are people that have attempted you know psychedelic cures for alcoholism and a lot of people don't know this but actually Late sixties ish is when LSD was kind of making a really big surge in America, and and Bill and a number of other founders of the program actually tried psychedelics while sober, um, mm-hmm. and thought that this maybe help be able to help people um, achieve ego deflation at death mm-hmm. is the phrase they used. Um,
1: well, I you know I certainly have thoughts about. Uh, that being helpful, um, I've certainly experienced in a controlled setting, in right. a clinical setting, I've yeah. experienced um, some really positive effects psychologically and physically of of the Ibogaine program. I do think, though, the way that it is now psychedelics hold promise, but as far as, you know... If you tell somebody who has a drug problem that they can go out on the street and use a drug to stop doing drugs, right? And there's no roadmap and there's no control group and there's no
0: well, the idea being it's good to have revelations. What do you do with those afterwards? You know, sure. where's the aftercare walls to follow through? You know, because this is a chronic condition, you know, right? This, I don't know any alcoholics that give it a year or five years or ten years could go back to drinking socially. Right, right, right. You know, and you got to, you know, and and 12-step programs are great in that they are going to be there forever in theory.
1: I mean, that's what's so beautiful about it. Like like I said, I I had that, you know, the experience with the psychedelic healing or whatever. But I immediately, from there, I got just enough insight to be like, I have to do everything that I need to do to keep this under control. And that includes, like, daily checking in with the 12-step, you know. Um, And I think... That's a really good point, Dave. Is the idea that you're going to have a thought so strong that it can overrule right. training? It can overrule, you yeah. know, uh, biochemistry and all these other things. That's that's a really big ask of anything, of any treatment. You know, there's no treatment out there that suggests that you can have a, a one one idea, one revelation, and it's done. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, th- and that's yeah, not to that's yeah, that's not to dog. You know, uh, the future of the research with these compounds, I mean, we're seeing some crazy steps even in post-traumatic stress with, yeah. you know, this idea of uh, a clinical setting MDMA treatments and stuff like that. Although that has aftercare, that has right. That's exactly psychotherapy, right. that has, yeah. you know, there's a lot of stuff that I think really does need to be built into any kind of a new treatment.
0: But when and, you're an addict, it's very easy to rationalize. I'll just do a bunch of ecstasy and then I'll be better.
1: For sure. For sure, I mean, it sounds more were...
0: fun than working for it, right? Oh, duh. I mean, if there was a pill <laughs> that cured addiction, I would take two.
1: Right. I mean, I certainly, uh, for long enough, tried um, Suboxin. You know, the modern right. modern day kind of methadone. And I still, I think, like I have friends that aren't dead because they're on Suboxin and not heroin. But
0: but in the long term, big picture, yeah, there isn't a whole lot of emotional progress. You know, there there's less risk taking behavior. There's less. You know, it's harm reduction. Yeah. That's why they call it that. Yeah. Um, okay. However. I, I'm a firm believer in let's use these in an inpatient setting and let's taper off of everything and you're going to need to do the work at some point. Right. Like you're saying, a lot of people will procrastinate doing the work. You know, yeah. and procrastination is just, you know, fear of emotional responsibility.
1: I have friends who got clean before I did, but went on to Suboxone maintenance. Right. And then I see them now and I have, you know, a year just right. completely, right. you know, off and It makes me sad to see them a little bit stuck not doing some of the work, like you said, that comes after the drugs. Right. You know, that comes, you know, when it's really about everything else that's underneath, you know. Um, So, yeah, it's it's interesting. And I, I certainly I've always felt that prohibitions on harm reduction, even though I'm completely sober, I think the puritanical approach can lead a lot of people to you know dying and like the idea that we're not going to have Narcan everywhere and every right. you know first aid kit like right now we should you know yeah. it's going to save some people's lives. No I, you agree, with you. I agree with oh. you uh,
0: you know and, and the war on drugs hasn't done anything good unfortunately uh, yeah. I mean it's made a lot of people money. Sure um, yeah. the family that uh, has been you know producing and marketing OxyContin mm-hmm. is now going to be producing and marketing an opiate substitute to get you off of it and it's like surprise, surprise. Yeah. Well, wow. That's a great racket. They've got going on there. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Yeah.
1: we'll sell you the addiction so we can sell you the cure later. Right. It's like not even the well, cure, the treatment.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, cause they claimed that Oxycontin wasn't addictive. So, oh, yeah. Ugh,
1: God. Right. I just went back inside for a minute. I remembered, uh, I remembered for me, probably one of the darkest moments of my life was the first time that I switched from, uh, Oxycontin to heroin. And, it wasn't as strong. <laughs> that right. was a real, like that was a moment where I was like, oh, I'm in so much deeper than I had real, you know what I mean? I hear yeah. people talk about in uh, in AA and 12-step programs, you know, like, this was the moment I crossed the line. And I think about the moment that I crossed the line was like, I actually looked back and was like, oh, I think the line was somewhere way back there. Like,
0: way And And you can, you can only understand all that stuff in hindsight. You know, you don't even right. see it happen at the time. Yeah, you look back. I mean, I, when I thought about it, you know because I, I did drugs and alcohol because they made me feel good. Uh-huh. Um, they made me feel whole and complete and happy. and the fun had stopped literally five years before I got sober. You know, you just don't even see it. It just becomes habit and becomes you know an obsession and maintenance. Sure. yeah.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, at the end it is not fun. It's no and haven't and... been there in a long time. And, you know, it's interesting because I do hear so many people who get sober say the only reason that I made the choice to get sober is, you know, even when I was high, I felt so bad that it was like, well, nothing feels good anymore. I might as well not be killing myself to not feel good. you know yeah, what I mean totally. like
0: or, or you start out externally motivated, like, you know, your family intervenes or there's sure. a DUI or the band broke up or threatened with divorce. Um, but you get 30, 60, 90 days under your belt and you're actually feeling better and you get a little bit of hope sure. and you go well, shit, this is way better. Yeah. Yeah. And then you internalize that motivation and it becomes so much easier.
1: That's so cool to hear because like I've I've wondered, is that even possible? You know, like I've always wondered, like, is there a way to start with external motivation? Because I've only ever, I'm just so selfish that I've only ever been able to do
0: it when there's no other choice. You know what I mean? Well, I think most of us, most of us start out externally. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, well, I'm breaking everyone's heart I think, and i like, you know, I was just so selfish. So I'm going to do this for them, and I'll get the heat off, and then I'll get 30 days, and then maybe my tolerance will be lower. You know, all those things, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, that one. These yeah. really good reasons, yeah. But somewhere along the line, for me, it was about two weeks in where it kind of clicked. That wait a minute, maybe I should actually give this a shot. Speaking,
1: you know, speaking of the, you know, recovery and and the grace that some of us get, the chance that some of us get to to see life again, to come back to life and to try and try and make something positive out of it. Just a couple of days ago, we lost Mac Miller and that's, that's really hard. Uh, a lot of, I have a lot of friends in common with him, a lot of people who worked for him. Um, but it's just another one in this huge line. You know, I was talking with Travis from picture paint about little peep the other day. Um, you know, then on the rock side, you know, so many heroes, uh, of mine that I grew up with are gone. And, Uh, contemporaries, people, uh, people like Chester from Lincoln Park. I'm sure that you've had either clients or people close to your clients that you've lost, you know, from drugs and alcohol, or at least things that are adjacent to drugs and alcohol, like suicide while being under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Um, I don't know, do you see, you know, how does it affect you? How does it affect your kind of line of work? Like, have you seen a lot of people thinking about this and, and talking about this and being hurt and moved and affected by this? Like, is this a topic that comes up in your work?
0: Constantly. 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 Um, you know, I mean, I've been sober coming up on, on 20 years and I've been an addictions professional for 16 of that. Um, I mean, I bury 10, 12, 15 people a year easily. Hmm. It seems like it's speeding up. I mean, it seems like mm-hmm. the potency of what's out there is so much stronger than it used to be. Um, you know we've got fentanyl we're dealing with which is coming in in massive amounts and everybody's cutting their dope with fentanyl which is so much stronger right and it just seems like people are checking out left and right I mean you build up a tolerance so quickly and it overwhelms that right yeah you know and, and it didn't used to be people dropping like flies in right. clusters like it is yeah
1: yeah I can still remember when Kirk Cobain died you know it was like yeah Wow, it got so bad that he killed himself like that. Even then, it seemed pretty rare. You know, that yeah. was like nobody could believe it happened. Whereas if that were to happen now to the biggest star in the world, yeah. you'd be like, yeah, of course it did. That's what's going on now. Well,
0: it right. seems like that's happening, you know, once a month. We're losing right. somebody that, you know.
1: And we're finding out that we're losing more than we realize. Prince, Tom Petty. You know, people who like at first you're like, they just
0: died. They're older or whatever. Right. And it's like, no. No, yeah. It turns out they were on massive amounts of opiates. Right. Carrie Fisher. Did you see the list, the toxicology report on Carrie Fisher? Oh, no, I didn't. Oh, it was like nine different things were in her system. Yeah, and this is someone that had experimented and been sober for long periods of time. Um, Yeah. You know, and uh, Tom, with Tom, Petty had access to the best doctors and the best treatment and everything, and he still had street drugs in the system. Mm -hmm. You know, apparently he had a broken hip, Mm -hmm. and he was just self-medicating over that. And I think Prince was in a similar kind of situation where he was physical pain and just layering on top of layering. Oh, and there was right. apparently fentanyl for both of them, you know, it's like, yeesh.
1: right. You have these world-class giant yeah. in a bubble type stars and still they can't get drugs that are trustworthy.
0: Yeah. You know, and then so who's going to say, sobering. who's, who's going to say no to those people, right? In this uh, culture, there's so much worship of fame and there's so much of the entourage and how much people want to be in that bubble and, and driving the black out SUVs and, and the idea of I'm going to be banished from that circle if I say no to these people.
1: Well, it's interesting. I just had a, a, a good friend of mine who's smart. He's a writer. You know, he's written for The New Yorker and stuff. Um, he said to me, you know, the goal used to be how, when people would say, how, how successful do you want to get? He'd say, my goal used to be that you can't tell me nothing. Right. You know, get so right. famous that you can't tell me. And it's like that's a lot of people are at that place where they're like, nobody can tell me anything. I'm so famous that I know better than everybody
0: And And that's really,
1: that's really like, it's the first time I ever stopped when I saw some of the stuff going on and some of the stuff that's been breaking my heart with Kanye and some other stuff that I thought maybe like the luckiest thing that ever happened to me is that I, I didn't get that famous, you know, that I'm, I'm still manageably enough where people can be like, you're wrong. And I have to be like,
0: oh yeah, Uh, yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah.
1: I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about actually.
0: Well, that's the key to humility is I think I might have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. Man.
1: And it makes me feel for my friends that have gotten to that height, yeah. you know, that there's a certain, yeah. because I think we all have it in us to believe that we're above criticism.
0: There's a potential oh, for it. absolutely. Sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think we're all very good at, at wanting, you know, I, I think about the goal was to somehow be rich and famous so I could be a petulant teenager all the time. Like what a sad goal to have, you know? Like, oh my God, that's, that's pathetic. I just want to be able to do whatever I want to do at all times. Like that's kind of pathetic. But that was, you know, that was where I came from. Um, And I know people that are at that height, and it's very hard to get through to them. And it is sad, you know, and they slowly kind of insulate themselves from the world.
1: Being able to do whatever you want often doesn't make you happy, right?
0: Frequently, it's just the opposite, yeah.
1: Right, And, and, and then when you get into the habit of doing things you don't want to do and actually doing things to help other people, somehow this strange happiness can come out of it and it's really hard to tell people that because it sounds like you're trying to convince them to do something they don't want to do right but it's it's something that i found a, to be a strange
0: uh well you know truth when i was drinking if people had said you know we've got a thing over here that'll make you feel better about yourself so you don't need to do those things was, i mean I just that was such a threat to my being right you know i mean I'm, i had an ego the size of jupiter but it was paper thin so if anybody told me I was wrong about something, I couldn't acknowledge that because if I was wrong about that, then maybe I'm wrong about everything. And as it turned out, I was wrong about everything. Hmm. You know, And who was I without that ego?
1: Yeah. Damn. There was almost like a point at which I was thinking like <laughs> there would be something in, uh, in all the other interviews that I'd be like, huh, I wonder – I wonder what a, a professional would think of this, you know, like something would come up. I was like, man, I should have like an Ask Dave segment at the end. Like, let's go through and ask you a couple of these things, to. you know.
0: I, you know, I, somebody, somebody tweeted at Anthony Green about um, something about, you know, beating addiction and stuff. And Anthony had a really insightful response about I don't think he ever really actually beat it. Right. Um, but I tweeted back, you know, like, hey, dude, let's do a call-in show. Yeah. You know, like let's get a couple, three of us on, you know. Like an totally. addiction line kind of thing. I'd love to do that.
1: Yeah, like Love Line, but... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um
0: And just being the three of us busting each other's balls.
1: Well, it's interesting, too. You know, you get so many... So, you know, in, in the past year, since Thursday's been playing again, and I've been sober, you know, I've been, you know, kind of putting it out there into the world from the stage, uh, you know, sending a song out to other people that are struggling. And because yeah. of that, I've gotten a lot of direct messages with questions about. Oh, wow. Violence, that's amazing. Yeah. Which is incredible. You know, uh, people that I've talked to, uh, you know, quote unquote as fans, but that, that oh, I remember and I remember really the face sure. and I know who they are. I kind of like, Oh yeah, you were, you were in a doctorate program or you were doing that. You know what I mean? I just remember general things about them and that's awesome. they'll come to me and they'll have very specific questions because they'll be so deep in oh, addiction wow. themselves. And yeah. it's such a, um, and it makes me really glad that I have a support program like like yeah. uh, the twelve steps because it's a lot of pressure. You know, you, when somebody asks you a question like that, it's easy to feel like you have their life in your hands. Yeah. You know, yeah, um, sure, responsible. So, kind of that that reminder that we get in the group is that you know, there's only so much you can control, and yeah. that you can try and give them uh, some help to help themselves. You know, like attraction um, rather than promotion. You know, just just try and say something that'll help without telling them you know the answer. You know, that kind right. of thing. Um, but one of the questions that I get all the time in my DMs about it is, you know, I know that 12 Steps is like sort of the, the easiest one for me to find and the one that, you know, I don't have to be rich to get somebody to walk me through it and this and right. that. But how were you able to grapple with the spiritual aspect of this program? Because it's a great question. You know, I don't want to bring God into my life because, you know, I don't believe in God or I don't want to talk about it or I don't want to think about it because... Because of whatever personal reason, but I also don't want to have to have that as something, right? In order to get better, and and that's something that's probably the hardest thing to talk about with somebody when, yeah, sure. You know when they bring it up. I, uh, you know, I think a lot of
0: people get threatened by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Do you find in your own work too that that's something that comes up?
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, and it's one of those deals where you get to interpret spirituality, in your own way. Um, you know, some, a very wise man once said to me, you know, if you don't like the God of your understanding, get a new one. <laughs> and I was like, well, you can do that? I was like, well, you really, you can, you know? Somebody sent me a link to Kirk Cameron. You're familiar with him? He was a child mm-hmm. actor. Sure. And I guess he's a born-again Christian. Yeah, I heard that, yeah. And, and he was doing a video about how, you know, there are hurricanes coming. And hurricanes are God's way of giving us humility because... They destroy all of us and show us that we need, and it was just like, wow, you're full of shit. <laughs> what the hell are you, like as though somehow the people in Puerto Rico needed some humility. And right. thank God God's given it to them now. Like, no, I think they're dying. Yeah, right. I think that's not, I think it might be rising barometric pressure. And we need to take a look at science and climate change. That's my take. But I think a lot of people kind of grow up with this vengeful deity kind of thing you know and i understand why you know you'll hear people in 12 step rooms calling i'm a recovering catholic sure and it's like any it, and it's okay to kind of cast off maybe some of the views you had as a kid and kind of coming up with your own like like that whole tuesdays with maury thing The i'm a spiritual mutt you know i want to figure it out as i go and that's a great idea think about the 12 steps is they're 12 very simple spiritual exercises that are non-denominational and non-judgmental and once you understand what they mean you stop worrying about the big capital G that maybe you grew up with, you know, and the sure. threatening kind of, you know, and then and you just kind of, for me, you know, I'm kind of much more of an Eastern meditation kind of guy. You know, mm-hmm. there are plenty of ways of getting spirituality into your life that aren't maybe threatening and just be open-minded, but I get where people are coming from when they,
1: for sure. And I think like when I first went into the rooms, some of the stuff, even that was like trying, trying to make light of that, would also turn me off you know i would hear like god just stands for group of drunks you know and i'd be like okay so like now i'm gonna have like these assholes as my higher power you know what i mean i would start (laughs)
0: and
1: and i would kind of feel like yeah Yeah. well i mean i want something bigger than that but then i kind of even saw like hey anything bigger if i believe in anything is greater Mm -hmm. than me just me then i've got a shot you know because i really think like that's a big part of it, you know. If you think that you're yeah. the the center of the universe, if you think, then how are you ever going to go against your own impulses? And, and I feel very lucky that I've developed yeah. a really deep spiritual practice because because of my willingness to take action first and to yeah. like. And that's another thing that I heard that I really you know loved in in the program was this sort of idea that you could believe by practicing. You know, practice first, the belief uh-huh. comes later. You know, get on your knees, like humble yourself.
0: And that's really like, well, that's, that's, you know, and that's just cognitive behavioral therapy too, is that I can't think my way into right action. I have to act my way into right thinking. And if I change my actions for long enough, my thinking changes.
1: I think that's a really profound statement that like you say it quickly like that. You say, you know, it's, it's easy for people to say, okay, you're saying something about actions or whatever, but I actually think, you know, it is true. You can't, you can't fix your thinking with your thinking. It's the same tool. It'll work around you, you know what I mean? Your impulses are The mind are strong. that created
0: the problem can't create the solution. You know, and the first step to humility is acknowledging I don't know what the hell I'm doing and having somebody that maybe does, you know, reach out and, and give you some suggestions and you take them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard so many different kinds of higher powers be explained in these groups, you know. Yeah. Um, I've heard, you know, the room, the group itself. I've heard humanity. I've heard, you know, people who will just assign it to a, an object so that yeah. they can... You know, other people say, like, uh, the the collective wisdom of the ages, things like that, where I'm like, okay, I see what you mean. Like, there's been a lot of people thinking for a long time, you put all their wisdom right, together, and it's right.
0: way smarter than me, right? Totally smarter than me, yeah. Most people think they're going to lose their individuality when they get into something greater than themselves. And it's like, well, no, actually, this is kind of as cliche as this, and after school special as this sounds, you know, getting into something greater than yourself is actually how you find your individuality. Right.
1: For some of us, the idea of spirituality at all is an existential threat because then you'd have to acknowledge the yeah. sense that there is some kind of a spirit of some, there's something more than just biology on earth. And uh, yeah. I read this, there's a book of essays called, uh, what is it called? It's Marilyn Robinson. I think it's called, What Are We Doing Here? And okay. she's a Calvinist, which is, I didn't know anything about Calvinism before I read this book of essays, but she's very smart. And I thought it would be interesting to see an academic defend spirituality in yeah. any way. You know, totally. And one of the things that she talks about is that um, the idea that man has a spirit is, is way less radical than the idea that there is no such thing. The idea that there's no such thing, that really goes like, you really have to say there's nothing here besides, you know, we could be dogs, we could be ants, we could be whatever.
0: And it's ultimately pretty fucking depressing.
1: Right. And she just, she just deconstructed it in a way where saying definitively that the spirit is not a real thing is way more bold and like cocky than saying there might be something to
0: this whole thing. Yeah, well, that's just it. That thinking. whole level of ego and arrogance, I didn't mm-hmm. mostly giving myself enough credit for having.
1: And maybe this is a good place to wrap things up. You said that there's a lot of anxiety in artists. Will I be able to create yeah. without substances? And I know you've seen a number of artists across the threshold of sobriety. Do you find that they all become paralyzed and can't write? They can't you know, make art. They can't make music. They can't make,
0: you know, they can't. Well, here's write. the thing. Every artist I've ever known that, that complained about writer's block which is a complete misnomer, because it wasn't that they weren't writing. It was that they were writing. They just hated everything they were writing. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, they didn't actually hate what they were writing. They just hated themselves <laughs> at the time. And, you know, and that was a reflection of their art. Mm-hmm. And given enough time and given enough work on oneself, and, and, and sobriety becomes this confident, self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecy in that the longer you stay clean, the more faith you have in yourself. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of gain confidence in the art you're making. It's interesting the stuff people create when they first get sober because it's just so visceral.
1: If anything, it actually gets more raw.
0: You know, I mean, mean, I I know for me, I grew up feeling like life was just too bright and and I was just too sensitive and I needed a filter. I needed to turn the volume down on life. It was just terrifying. Mm -hmm. And that's when I discovered, you know, vodka and and all kinds of other things. And, um, you know, when you get sober, you're still that same raw open wound. And it's just, you look at some of the stuff people create their first year of sobriety it's like, wow, this is amazing. Right. Yeah. I mean, just putting it out there.
1: My experience has not been a dulling of creativity. It's right. been a sort of like, if anything, yeah. remember to look up. You know, remember to join the real world every so often because yeah. I can get so wrapped up now, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, right. You know, you just get lost in it. You revel in it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Because I think that a lot of artists think the muse isn't so easily summoned and they need to get into an altered state in order to create. And then you get sober and realize, wait, I can just tap into this all the time. Right. Yeah, and it becomes an addiction too.
1: I've noticed that,
0: for yeah. sure. Well, the, the, biggest, the two biggest things that are going to combat addiction are connection and balance. Mm-hmm. Balance, yes. Yeah, connection at first. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you work on some balance. You know, none of us could spell the word balance.
1: Connection and balance are two things that I've sought in my own recovery. Though I got treatment in January of 2017, it was several months before I realized that recovery was something I'd have to do for the rest of my life. If you or anyone you know is looking to try and recover from drugs and alcohol please know that you're not alone and that none of us do this perfectly. Dave Sherman can be found at theroadtorehab.com and there are local Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous chapters all over the country and all over the world. This is Dark Blue. I'm Jeffrey Rickley. Until next time. This podcast is In The Loop. The Legion of Osiris Podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at OsirisPod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at Relics.com.